Okay, so today's lecture is on comedy of errors. So comedy of errors is written towards the beginning of Shakespeare's career. That's one of the things I'm going to talk about about it. And it's first printed in the first folio, that posthumous collected edition of Shakespeare's plays in 1623. If you've been to any of the previous lectures in this series, you'll know that the premise of the, of the lectures is uh, to try and distill quite a lot of critical areas into one question, and then to use that question on the play to reopen uh, some different kinds of methodologies and lines of inquiry that we might use to focus our attention. So my question about comedy of errors, my attempt to condense what critics have said about it, is quite a simple one. Should we bother with it? Okay. Should we bother with comedy of errors? Most criticism, I think, has been asking that question. Is it, is it a serious play? Are there ways we can take it seriously? So the lecture today is about uh, seriousness, whether comedy of errors is serious, uh, whether plays should be serious, and whether seriousness is the only thing that should uh, grab our attention. So, of course, since I'm barely a minute into the lecture, my premise for the next 50 or so minutes is going to be that it is worth bothering with. Uh, but you, you will make your own judgment uh, about that. I'm going to start, as I will in all the lectures, with an outline of the plot of the play, in case you're not familiar with that. So the play begins quite darkly. Aegean, who is a merchant, is under arrest and threat of death because he is an enemy from Syracuse in Ephesus. The Duke pronounces that he has only until evening to find the ransom. Aegean tells us that 33 years ago a shipwreck divided his family so that he was parted from his wife Amelia and his twin sons Antiphilus and Antiphilus were also separated as were their twin servants Dromeo and Dromeo. The other twins, Antiphilus and Dromeo, uh, they're both, they have both ended up in Syracuse, so we'll try and call them Antiphilus and Dromeo of Syracuse. Uh, but in some ways, muddling these characters up is part of the point of the play, uh, so uh, I wouldn't really try too hard to keep them uh, absolutely separate. You'll see some of the implications of that later. So Ant Antiphilus of Syracuse and Dromeo of Syracuse have also, like Aegean, left Syracuse and spent their adult life looking for their missing brothers, and Aegean has now come to look for them. So we meet Antiphilus of Ephesus, the one who was lost and went to Ephesus, who is married to Adriana, who is very discontented that he pays her no attention. She complains to her unmarried sister, Luciana, uh, and Luciana becomes the object of the other Antiphilus's affections. And there's a parallel sort of romance plot for the Dromeo twins, which involves uh, a person, a gargantuan person called Nell, who we never see. Antiphilus of Ephesus has various business associates. Uh, as I'm going to talk about later, this is a very city play, and it has quite a lot of unexpected resonances with city comedy, uh, as practiced by uh, later writers, Middleton, uh, Marston and Decker. And his various business associates include Angelo, a goldsmith, from whom he has commissioned a gold chain, Balthazar, a merchant, and a courtesan, to whom he promises the said gold chain, which he had originally intended for his wife. Dr Pinch comes in at the end, who is a comic schoolteacher come magician, brought in to cure the apparent madness caused by the confusion between the two sets of twins. Antiphilus of Ephesus 
is arrested for not paying for goods which of course he has never received because they've gone to his brother in error. In the play's final scene, Antiphilus of Ephesus is interrogated about these debts and recognised by his father Aegean, but of course he doesn't know it's his father. Uh, Aegean approaches him for the ransom money that he needs to save his life, but Antiphilus of Ephesus says he doesn't know who he is. The abbess, another random person, apparently random person who comes in right at the end of the play, promises to cure Antiphilus's madness, but what she does is to introduce the other twin, Antiphilus of Syracuse, who is also in her abbey, having fled there for sanctuary. So she reveals what's at the heart of all this, unexpectedly, that there are two, uh, two sets of identical twins. The abbess, of course, has her own revelation too. She is Emilia, Aegean's wife, and therefore the mother of the Antiphilus twins. The confusions of the day are untangled, and she invites everyone to a belated christening party for her sons. Now, if the summary is confusing, I do, as I say, think that's inevitable. Basically, the plot of Comedy of Errors tells us that whichever twin is on stage at any time, it's the wrong one. Shakespeare has taken a well-known play by the ancient Roman playwright Plautus, uh, a play called Menachme. Menachme is pretty much a set text for Elizabethan uh, grammar schoolboys, and therefore we might see this uh, maybe alongside something like Titus Andronicus in its use of Ovid uh, as a play which is particularly indebted to a kind of school grammar school repertoire uh, of source material. So Shakespeare's taken this well-known play and he has doubled it. Plautus has only one set of twins, the equivalent of the Antiphiluses, or maybe we should call them Antiphili, whereas Shakespeare introduced a second set, two servant Dromeos. And there is also an onomastic confusion. So onomastics is the study of proper names, so an onomastic confusion. Plautus initially names his twin brothers Menachmus and Sosicles. But in a long prologue, he explains that Sosicles has been renamed Menachmus in memory of his lost brother. But there is some sense in Plautus that the twins have at least initially separate identities indicated by distinct proper names. As I want to set out uh, as we go forward in this lecture, one reason we might want to pay attention to Comedy of Errors is that Shakespeare confounds this attempt at individual separation even while, very contradictorily, uh, in the long opening scene where um, Aegean tells us what's uh, all this background, he tells us that the infant boys were so alike they could not be distinguished but by names. They could not be distinguished but by names. In fact, they're not distinguished by names, so presumably they could not be distinguished. They could not be distinguished but by names. So, let's go back, though, a step and think about why, why is the this doubt that Comedy of Errors is a, is a worthy or an interesting play? Why is the question that I identified a critical question about it? I think it's for two reasons. Firstly, our attitude to the notion of early Shakespeare, and the second, our attitude to comedy. Let's take the notion of early Shakespeare first. Here, I think the discussion is parallel to something I discussed in the lecture on The Winter's Tale as a so-called late play. There, I suggested that the notion of lateness in regard to Shakespeare is not simply a descriptive chronological term, but that it has evaluative connotations, and those connotations have to do with uh, aspects of profundity and maturity. The artist uh, draws on a wealth of experience and somehow goes beyond it. 
Gordon McMullen's book Shakespeare and the Idea of Late Writing is a really stimulating investigation of these cultural assumptions. But we might think that the notion of early, too, is a term that we should look at in more detail, since early in Shakespeare studies doesn't either uh, indicate a simply chronological or descriptive um, uh, category, but uh, an evaluative one. Early Shakespeare denotes immaturity, apprentice work, uh, latent themes which only become interesting when he does them better next time. Now, we might want to quibble with the idea of early work uh, in general. It's worth pointing out, that, pointing out that all of Marlowe's plays, for instance, were completed in a period that, had he lived longer, would have been called early. Uh, and they, Shakespeare and Marlowe, born in the same year, uh, they're all, all Marlowe's plays are completed before Shakespeare has written uh, Comedy of Errors. There's been a mutually reinforcing critical discourse which has suggested that the Comedy of Errors is not very sophisticated and therefore it must be early, and it, is not, and it is early and therefore not very sophisticated. You can see that it's quite hard to kind of break out of uh, that kind of circularity. So is the Comedy of Errors all that early anyway? The Oxford Shakespeare, the useful thing, lots of different uh, Shakespeare, uh, complete Shakespeare editions, and uh, you've probably got a sense what's useful to you uh, already. Uh, one useful thing about the Oxford Shakespeare, the Wells and Taylor, particularly the second edition, is that it places the works in a kind of conjectured chronological order. So their principle of organisation is the order in which they think Shakespeare wrote things, as opposed to the principle of organisation in the folio, which is to organise them by genre uh, or uh, you know, any other kind of principle that you might, uh, you might think of. So the Oxford Shakespeare organises by chronology, and that's useful to us here because uh, if you want to look where a play comes in Shakespeare's chronology, you can see uh, where it comes in the Oxford Shakespeare. And that edition dates Comedy of Errors to 1594, 1594, the date of its first performance at Gray's Inn, one of the inns of court. So that suggests that before Comedy of Errors, we get Two Gentlemen of Verona, Taming of the Shrew, all three parts of Henry VI, Richard III, and Titus Andronicus, as well as the narrative poems The Rape of Lucrece and Venus and Adonis. So that's, what is it, seven plays uh, and two narrative poems before we get to Comedy of Errors. That would be an argument for saying Comedy of Errors is not even particularly early. Richard II, the play that the Oxford chronology puts right after Comedy of Errors, is not a play we very often talk about as being early, certainly not in a dismissive or a negative sense. You can, though, see that in another way that argument actually reinforces the associations between earliness and insubstantiality is only by proposing a later date for Comedy of Errors than was previously assumed that we can reap the positive associations of accumulated uh, wisdom and experience. Uh, nobody... Uh, Nobody really, it's, it's interesting how the critical argument has developed. Nobody is saying, yes, it is early and it is worth, worth, worthy our consideration. It's early and it's interesting. People are saying, it's interesting and it's not so early. So that, that, those connections, the connection between earliness and uh, immaturity are quite difficult to break. So I think we need to try and disaggregate early and unsophisticated or early and uninteresting. And similarly, we need to find some new ways of understanding Shakespeare's comedy. Perhaps the most prominent critical appreciation of Shakespeare's comedies has come via either sort of structural or anthropological understandings of the play's relations to festival culture, those theories of comedy as a kind of social safety valve. So I'm thinking there about uh, something like C.L. Barber's influential book, Shakespeare's Festive Comedy, and Barber argues that the plays kind of shadow a sort of festive 
um, uh, world of uh, entertainment and uh, subversion uh, that exists in Elizabethan culture. So that's one way that one prominent way we've understood Shakespeare's comedies, and the other is a more uh, specifically sort of socio-historical or even theoretical work on gender and sexuality. So indicatively here, I'm thinking of something like Valerie Traub's book, Desire and Anxiety, Circulations of Sexuality in Shakespearean Drama. And these are, this kind of work says, you know, what's interesting about the comedies is the way uh, comedies play with uh, ideas of sexuality, perhaps particularly through cross-dressing, through female agency, uh, through uh, disguise and uh, a kind of romance plot. Now, you can perhaps see, by the way, I've outlined those two critical methodologies that comedy of errors is not very easily assimilated into either of these frameworks. It doesn't really take up rituals of inversion uh, in the festive comedy sense. Uh, it doesn't have status or gender disguises. The repeated beatings of the servant Dromeos actually seem to me to reinforce social hierarchies, even as uh, everything else takes on a sort of topsy-turvy quality. And although it, the play does have in the characters of Luciana and Adriana, and in some ways even the courtesan, uh, I say even the courtesan because it's, it's a, a really quite a small role, but across those three female roles, uh, and even the absent Nell perhaps, it has some interesting articulation of women's role in society, but it isn't prominently arranged around female characters, female quest, female experience, as we come to expect Shakespeare's romantic comedies uh, to be. So that oft-quoted uh, generic distinction, Comic Women, Tragic Men, useful title of Linda Bamber's book, uh, doesn't really apply here. Or perhaps it does. We'll come back to that. Uh, so Adriana and Luciana are given some role, particularly articulating a wistful sense of disappointment about the men around them. But they're not prominent or active in the way that, say, Rosalind in As You Like It or Viola in Twelfth Night will be. The people in this play who are travelling, who move from one world to another in order to change themselves and it, so you can recognise that as a really common Shakespearean device that people move, particularly comic device, move from one place to another. The, the, the travellers, the people who do that in this play, are not female as they are elsewhere. Uh, we don't get anything like Rosalind's well, this is the Forest of Arden, where she indicates that they've moved, or Viola's early, what country friends is this? Instead, we've got Antiphilus and Romeo, who are the questing uh, figures. And Errors uh, obviously has some kind of um, uh, etymological uh, connection with erring uh, and with errant, with, with moving around, with travelling, uh, as well as with mistakes. So Norris' comedy of errors is really about society healing and reproducing itself through the trope of romance leading to marriage. It would be easy to imagine a play in which the uh, errant Antiphilus, who's been dallying with the courtesan, is reunited with his wife Adriana, and his twin brother is married to her sister Luciana, but that's not our play. Okay, so it would be quite an obvious ending to have. It's not the ending we get. The play gestures towards a romantic comedy conclusion in that it's got two pairs uh, of, uh, two pairs of partners, um, but it doesn't really get there. Instead, its central opposite sex couple in its conclusion are the older, reunited husband and wife, Aegean and Emilia. In this way, the, the play ends, uh, I think, it, with, with a kind of nod towards or something which we can see more clearly 
by thinking about Shakespeare's uh, later plays. So here we're getting the old couple, say, Pericles uh, and Thesa from uh, Pericles, or Laontes and Hermione from The Winter's Tale, but we're not also getting the younger couple that we have in those plays too. There are lots of ways I think Comedy of Errors most, uh, most interestingly links with uh, the, the play Shakespeare's writing at the end of his career. Uh, it's another way in which I think uh, those chronological uh, distinctions are not perhaps all that useful. So, Comedy of Errors has not been susceptible to theories of comedy as socially regenerative, nor does it play explicitly with the issues of gender and sexuality. There are no outsiders, there's not really much homosocial bonding, there are no parallel cases from social history, uh, although there has been some work on master-servant relationships. Largely, therefore, the things we have found susceptible to literary analysis in comedy, in Shakespeare's comedies, do not seem to be present in this play. Instead, what, we have, what critics have seen is a play with a high proportion of features we don't tend to appreciate in literary terms. Slapstick action, no subplot, unpoetical language, flat characters. Okay. So that's a sort of negative cluster of ways of thinking about the play that suggests that it is only of interest in the way that it anticipates the more sophisticated treatment of themes in later plays. Coleridge called this play a poetical farce. A poetical farce. I don't think he meant it entirely as a compliment. But I think there are some literary analyses and some forms and some things we can bring to bear on comedy of errors which will uh, make it reveal itself into more interesting ways. Uh, and one of the things I want to try and do is to introduce some uh, alternative theories of comedy, some non-anthropological or non-socio-historical uh, sort of theories of comedy uh, to help us appreciate it. I'm going to suggest, in fact, that we use uh, a, a decidedly anachronistic theory of comedy uh, to try to think about uh, what Shakespeare's doing here. And I'm going to use uh, Henri Bergson, French modernist philosopher, who's writing at the beginning, very beginning of the 20th century. Bergson's most famous essay is Le Rire, or Laughter. It's very, very widely uh, available on Google Books and stuff, so if you just Google it, you can find the full text very, very easily. But I've taken out a few uh, quotations that I think are going to be useful for us here. So Bergson is trying to develop a theory of what makes us laugh and what laughter means. Basically, his idea is that while laughter can only be generated by humans, okay, so he says we only laugh at human things, uh, and if we laugh, say, at an animal, it's because we're anthropomorphizing it. So we laugh uh, at human things, but the laughter arises from a situation in which the human body behaves in a way which is not human, more precisely that it behaves like a machine or an automata. The attitudes gestures and movements of the human body are laughable in exact proportion as that, as that body reminds us of a mere machine. The attitudes, gestures and movements of the human body are laughable in exact proportion as that body reminds us of a, of a mere machine. Bergson says that comedy enables us to see man as a jointed puppet and he describes it as something mechanical encrusted upon the living something mechanical encrusted upon the living. We can see that the elasticity of Mr. Bean or the implausible physicality of a silent comedian like Buster Keaton or something would seem to embody Bergson's central idea. Bergson's idea is that rigidity, physiological primarily, but also social and cultural, is at the root of the comic. 
We laugh, says Bergson, every time a person gives us the impression of being a thing. We laugh every time a person gives us the impression of being a thing. I've said that this is an anachronistic theory to apply to uh, comedy of errors, although uh, I don't in any way suggest it's anachronistic and therefore we shouldn't do it. Um, but we could compare it quite interestingly with a non-anachronistic theory, Sydney, in the defence of poetry. This is Sydney's discussion of laughter, which is quite an interesting uh, and, and slightly sobering uh, passage. Our comedians think there is no delight without laughter, which is wrong, for though laughter may come with delight, yet it cometh not of delight, as though delight should be the cause of laughter, but well doth one thing breed both together. Nay, rather in themselves, so that's delight and laughter, they have, as it were, a kind of contrariety. For delight we scarcely do, but in things that have a conveniency to ourselves or the general nature. Laughter almost ever cometh of things more disproportionated to ourselves and nature. Delight hath a joy in it, either permanent or present. Laughter hath only a scornful tickling. For example, we are ravished with delight to see a fair woman, and yet far from being moved to laughter. We laugh at deformed creatures, wherein we certainly cannot delight. So disproportionated, I think here, has something of the quality, Sydney's word disproportionated, has something of the quality of Bergson's rigidity. And both uh, Sydney and, as I'm going to show, Bergson, share the idea that to laugh at something is to, be, is to lack pity for it, is to be unempathic. So Sydney's analysis shows us that, of course, that what is funny or what prompts laughter is culturally and historically specific. Laughter is a cultural and not a physiological response. We talk about bursting out laughing or not being able to stop laughing as if these are in some way involuntary responses, whereas in fact they're deeply learned and deeply uh, cultural. But there, in Bergson's definitions, there is, uh, in addition, a kind of dehumanising, as we saw echoed in Sydney. I think Bergson intends uh, to think about laughter as a, a, as a, a kind of dehumanising property of modernity. You might want to think back to you know, anxieties about modernism and um, mechanical processes and dehumanising um, uh, industrial scale uh, uh, warfare, for example, in the, in the First World War. Uh, but we, we can see Bergson's theory uh, in action perhaps most clearly in Charlie Chaplin's film Modern Times, where Chaplin becomes part of the unremitting mechanical production line in the factory where he works. Bergson suggests then that comedy requires the dehumanising of its object. The comic in this reading is the opposite of the sentimental. So comedy and sentiment are complete opposites. The sentimental evokes feeling and empathy. The comic demands separation and coldness. Something uh, in one of the, I think, my, my favourite bits in the Bergson, uh, comedy requires the momentary anaesthesia of the heart. The momentary anaesthesia of the heart. So the idea that comedy might demand such a momentary anaesthesia is challenging to our feel-good ideas about laughter, but also to our response to Shakespeare, where warmth towards characters and their situations is a large part of audience pleasure, particularly in the comedies. But perhaps Bergson's theory might help us look at the way that the comedy of errors refuses that kind of empathic engagement, refuses, for the most part, 
to offer us characters in recognisable situations with whom we can empathise, and how the play cultivates instead this anaesthesia of the heart that enables comedy to take place. Or, to put it another way, Comedy of Errors is pure comedy because we don't care about the Antipholuses or the Dromios or which is which. It is a kind of cardiac anaesthesia in five acts. Now, part of the critical issue with the play and its rejection of audience empathy is that its characterisation, the play's characterisation, has seemed apparently so flat. The two Antipholuses and the two Dromios are separated situationally, so they belong to different places uh, and they do slightly different things, but they're not separated in terms of their personality, or at least not substantially. We never, in fact, really see their personalities. They exist as different people in the structure of the plot, not in a kind of social or psychological imaginary. And the very moments where we begin to feel that we might access something which is more specific and personal often turn out in this play to be quite frustrating. Let's take Antipholus of Syracuse in Act 1, Scene 2. Having arrived in Ephesus to look for his long-lost brother, Antipholus sends off his servant to their lodging place and has a momentary soliloquy alone on stage. So far then, so good. Soliloquies are when we meet characters alone and enter into a new privileged relationship with them. But Antipholus of Syracuse's metaphor in his soliloquy collapses that claim to singularity, even as it asserts it. I, to the world, am like a drop of water that in the ocean seeks another drop, who, falling there to find his fellow forth, some editions have failing there to find his fellow forth, unseen, inquisitive, confounds himself. So I, to find a mother and a brother in quest of them unhappy, lose myself. I, to the world, am like a drop of water. The image of the water drop is hardly, we might think, a propitious one for asserting individuality. And it's not simply here that Antipholus has the specific uh, challenge to his identity that he is an identical twin. So he isn't saying, I'm a drop of water and there is another one drop of water just like me. So it's not the specific plot that we have here uh, that the, uh, th this man is, is half of a, of a pair of twins, but something somehow more existential. The fact that he's a twin seems hardly to matter. What the speech says is that he, Antipholus, is indistinguishable from everybody else, not just the person he looks exactly like, but the whole indeterminate ocean of humanity. The erasure of individualism, then, just in that short speech, is complete, and I think it's enacted through the contorted syntax of that final phrase. So I, to find a mother and a brother, in quest of them, unhappy, lose myself. Even the phrase, I lose myself, is itself lost, divided and alienated by those intervening clauses. So Antipholus's brief soliloquy is not a moment of con connection or revelation, but in fact a moment of alienation. It's like something Estrogen might say, in Waiting for Godot. And in fact, the absurdist theatre of the mid-20th century is, I think, an interesting parallel for the bleaker and more existential aspects of comedy of errors. And as if to confirm that the language of Antipholus's stunted soliloquy is about commonality, not individuality, Shakespeare actually gives it again to another character. 
when Adriana encounters, as she thinks, her husband, in fact, it's of course her husband's brother, she reminds him of the inviolability of their marriage bond in a similar image. No, my love, as easy mayst thou fall a drop of water in the breaking gulf and take unmingled thence that drop again without addition or diminishing as take me from thyself. Marriage, here indistinguishable from uh, more general watery commingling, seems the epitome of a recurrent difficulty of individuation. So what Comedy of Errors, I think, suggests is that character and characterization is not the property of the internal, but the external. That seems to me a theme which recurs in Shakespeare, and it recurs, therefore, in these lectures. It's by, in this play, uh, identity uh, is fixed when someone recognizes you as yourself. So it's, it's kind of in the eye of the beholder, in some way. It's by operating within a social system that personhood is achieved and secured. If you look at the early printed texts of Shakespeare's plays, at quarters where they exist, or as with Comedy of Errors, the folio, we can often see Shakespeare's view of a character fluctuating within and between scenes, such that their given name, their, their proper name, is often less important than their social status. So Claudius in Hamlet is only ever called King, Edmund in Lear only ever called Bastard, the character of Angelo in Comedy of Errors is called Goldsmith. We don't know the name of the Duke in uh, Measure for Measure, except uh, by reference to the list of characters appended at the end. Social statuses and social roles come first, proper names come second. In Shakespeare, very often, it is not being called by our name that identifies us, not least because, particularly in the history plays, there are characters who seem to have hundreds of, confusingly, hundreds of different names. So it's not being called by our name that is a primary mode of identification, but by being firmly in a particular role in society. Now, we know that this is a kind of preoccupation of early modern culture. It's, it's a part why social mobility and things like the sumptuary laws, those ineffective edicts which try and say what different classes of person are allowed to wear, they have such an anxious hold on, on the early modern imagination because being, if your identity is tied up with where you are in society, movements or fluidity in society become uh, much more uh, frightening. Comedy Veras, I think, amplifies this insight by giving both sets of twins that shared name. The proper name, therefore, is precisely what does not distinguish them. Names as signals of individual identity break down here, both in the themes of the plot and in the apparatus of the play. If you try to read the play in that first printing in the folio, it's almost impossible, not least because the editorial standardisation of the Antipholuses and the Dromios into of Ephesus or of Syracuse. That's a way modern editors give us a sort of mastery over what's happening, so at any time we do know who's speaking. That's not part of the folio at all, so we just get a character who's largely called Antipholus or a character called Dromio. They're not differentiated in that way. The experience of reading the play is a much more confusing one uh, in that format than modern editors make it for us. So if the play locates identity in exteriors, it also understands selfhood through property. Comedy of Errors is an unusually prop-dependent play for Shakespeare. Sometimes it can be a really useful job, actually, to um, just set, set out a list of what props you would really absolutely need to perform uh, any, any uh, particular play. There are lots and lots of plays for which you need really no props at all. 
Uh, here we do need props because they're, the, they're, uh, they're, they're not decorative, they're, they're actual uh, tokens of uh, transactions and of identity, particularly things like the gold chain, the rope, uh, and the money. They're all objects which indicate connection and interaction between characters, both metaphorically or literally. When the goldsmith in Comedy of Errors spots Antiphilus wearing the gold chain, he immediately and naturally identifies him as the man who has taken delivery of that chain and not paid for it. In fact, he isn't that man, but the gold chain seems to indicate that he is. The, the plot's confusions, thus, are confusions of props, giving money to the wrong man, extracting payment from the wrong man. And in this, we might want to see Comedy of Errors as Shakespeare's only city comedy, that genre which becomes so popular really around a decade after Comedy of Errors, which has a similar dependence on props, a similar interest in character types rather than in individual personality, and in fact a similar cast of merchants, courtesans and cuckolds. So the play's insight, I think, is that character is not expressed through the inner, through the outer, but through the outer. The play makes no claim for the specific or autonomous individual, Rather, its clever plot moves towards the reunion of a family. It's by resituating these people in their proper roles in relation to each other in the family that the play can be resolved. It might, though, be possible for us to read these figures in a more explicitly psychoanalytical way and therefore to link comedy of errors with something that Shakespeare explores elsewhere, the idea of split personality or a self refracted across several characters rather in the manner of that medieval dramatic form, psychomachia. I've talked about this before, but let's just recap. Psychomachia is a form of theatre in which actors play not individuals, but aspects of behaviour, and their interactions are, there, are thus less the interactions of full human beings, and rather an allegorised play of uh, possible behaviours for a kind of representative human subject. Shakespeare is usually credited with a break away from these kinds of characterisation and the discovery of a more interior psychology. But it might be useful to return to that uh, split form of characterisation in a more secular form here and to see the two Antipholuses and the two Dromios less as pairs of people and more as split or divided people, each seeking not the other but the self. One reason Comedy of Errors is not a romantic comedy is that the search is directed inward rather than outward. These guys are not looking for partners. Searching for his family, Antiphilus of Syracuse will lose himself. It is less his mother and his brother that he is looking for than some sense of personal completeness. Now, often this play has been performed with a single actor doubling the role of the twins. That's been particularly popular for the Dromeo characters. The BBC television production, for instance, has one actor who plays both Antiphiluses and one playing the Dromeos. It's an easier thing to do uh, on film, but it's not impossible uh, to do it in the theatre, uh, and there are quite a number of examples of that. It's an interesting technique because it adds, on the one hand, a kind of verisimilitude. Of course everybody's confused because the twins look so alike. They look so alike because they are the same person. But it links that verisimilitude with a really uh, unsettling kind of uncanny unheimlich kind of dream the, tree, the, the twins both are and are not separate people perhaps we could link this sense of psychic split with for instance the common doubling in Midsummer Night's Dream 
of the earthly rulers Theseus and Hippolyta with their fairy counterparts Oberon and Titania. So doubling there means the same actors uh, play the same, uh, those uh, two sets of characters. This tends, this has become uh, almost a cliche in readings of Midsummer Night's Dream and in performances of that play as a way of suggesting that the forest there is the dreamscape of Athens in which repressed or hidden personalities can emerge. If we take this to Comedy of Errors, an interesting phenomenon emerges. Antiphilus of Syracuse, the, the, the visiting uh, uh, twin, Antiphilus of Syracuse is able to experience all manner of vicarious behaviour without taking any responsibility for it. He's able to have encounters with the courtesan, uh, uh, encounters with his brother's wife, he's able to take goods without paying for them, and so on. Typically, the plot of this play works by making one brother take the rap, literally a beating always in the case of the Dromios, uh, and a kind of ear-bashing for the Antiphili brothers. One brother takes the rap for what the other has done. So we see that uh, again and again, a kind of uh, form of, of substitution. It's a dance of actions and displaced or ducked consequences. The current National Theatre production with Lenny Henry as Antiphilus has Adriana entice her husband, but in fact it's her husband's brother, to bed in what one reviewer identified nicely, I think, as Antiphilus's guilty pleasure. I think this makes the twins a kind of wish-fulfilment device, a sort of id function. They allow repression to be lifted and behaviour liberated by pushing the blame onto a kind of alter ego uh, or an alternate self. Under the guise of being someone else, even unwittingly, the characters are able to rehearse alternative selves and alternative behaviours. In this reading, what the plot reveals, though, is that such liberation can only be temporary. There is increasing stress and anxiety uh, in this play, uh, another review of the, of the uh, National Theatre production talks about the director's substantial achievement to orchestrate a gradually mounting mania, a gradually mounting mania. It's a great phrase uh, uh, and a great description of that production, but also of the play. Uh, the folio stage direction at the end of Act 4 has exeunt omnes as fast as may be frighted, as fast as may be Frighted. We don't very often get in stage directions uh, an indication of the emotion that's to be, uh, to, to be given in any one action, do we? If you think about that, we very rarely get uh, uh, so, sort of adverbs or uh, descriptions uh, in, that, in that way. And so it's quite a striking one, uh, as fast as may be, frighted. Events catch up with the bewildered Antiphilus and Dromeo of Syracuse, such that they have to seek sanctuary in the Abbey. We don't have to be fully paid up Freudians to see that what happens next is that a chaste nun-stroke-mum sorts it all out. If we push this idea a bit further, then, we can see that the, these errors are not too far from terrors. The scene in which Antiphilus of Ephesus returns to his home to find his way barred because his servant tells him he is already inside, supping with his wife, is a kind of parable of self-alienation. It's funny, but it's funny because its implications are frightening. And the play is very interested, I think, in the way uh, identity, witchcraft, possession, uh, both in the idea of being possessed by something outside yourself and having a kind of self-possession work. Shakespeare has relocated the action of the play from uh, Plautus's location, Epidamnus, to Ephesus. 
and Ephesus has strong associations in the Bible with exorcism, with evil spirits, and with confusion. The frequency with which this play employs a lexicon of magic and the supernatural is striking. More mentions of witches and witchcraft than in Macbeth, for instance. More mentions of conjuring and magic than in Midsummer Night's Dream. More references to Satan and the devil than in any other Shakespeare play. So on the edges of this uh, slapstick farce uh, is, a, is a real uh, abiding linguistic interest in magic, supernatural, the supernatural and devilry. Dr Pinch's attempts to exercise uh, this madness at the end of the play bring out Comedy of Errors' preoccupation with possession, madness and other forms of self-loss. So what I've been talking about so far then are ways to suggest that there is more to Comedy of Errors than the dismissal of it as an immature or trivial work might suggest. So the answer to my opening question, should we bother with Comedy of Errors, seems to be yes, because really it's Hamlet or Lear, but just in microcosm. When Hamlet tells Laertes he shouldn't be blamed for Polonius's death, he does it by suggesting it was not Hamlet, but his madness. Lear gets the answer, Lear's shadow, when he asks, who is it that can tell me who I am? So these are expressions of self-division we're used to seeing in tragedies and that we think are the hallmark of tragedies. They're already present in a different key in Comedy of Errors. As I think it's always attributed to John Mortimer, as John Mortimer wrote, farce is tragedy at a thousand revolutions per minute. Farce is tragedy at a thousand revolutions per minute. The speeded-up comedy of errors is only half the length of these later tragedies, but claims some of the same existential territory. So the gain here, interpretatively, interpretatively, has been to identify the play as worthy of study because it is serious, and how better to do that than to link it with the major tragedies. That's what we've gained. What we might have lost is an idea of comedy. It's a not very useful truism to, truism to say that most theorising of comedy is not very funny. I don't know whether we could, should be concerned that the critical movement to understand comedy tends to find it interesting precisely in proportion to the ways uh, it finds it no longer funny. Okay, so interesting and funny uh, seem uh, difficult for us to reconcile. We might then hear, we might here think, uh, and this is my final point, about laughter more generally. Firstly, comedy is not only about laughter. I've talked a bit about that distinction in the lecture on measure for measure when I talk about the difference between comic form and structure on the one hand and comic tone on the other. And I'm sure we'll come back to that when, when uh, we talk about all's well that ends well later on this term. But laughter is itself a complicated force, which I think is above all non-trivial. Bergson writes that laughter is above all a corrective we laugh at things as a coercive attempt to realign behaviours with social norms. Again, as with the echo of Sydney, Bergson, has, uh, uh, Bergson is not an entirely anachronistic force here. The historian Keith Thomas recognises uh, something about early modern laughter in quite similar terms. For all its affirmation of shared values, laughter could be a powerful source of social cohesion. In the close-knit village communities, mockery and derision, sounds a bit like Oxford Colleges to me, in the close-knit village communities, mockery and derision were indispensable means of preserving orthodox values and condemning unorthodox behaviour. 
So, comedy or laughter seeks to manage unorthodox behaviour and bring us into line. Uh, we laugh at things in order to send out a signal that they're not acceptable. What kind of orthodox behaviour is being managed then by the comedy of comedy of errors? Well, we could see that as befits a play performed as part of uh, uh, entertainment in the homosocial world of the Inns of Court, and a play which was almost certainly too short ever to be performed uh, in the public theatre of the globe, we can see that it reinforces certain attitudes about social rank. The serial beatings of the Dromio brothers can, in performance, take on an unreal Tom and Jerry kind of quality of violence, which is inventive and, in Bergson's terms, not human or slapstick. But they can also take on the more uncomfortable reality of the Tom and Jerry equivalent in the Simpsons cartoons, Itchy and Scratchy. Itchy and Scratchy, you'll remember, do draw real blood. Uh, the fact that they are real bodies uh, being uh, beaten and, and um, uh, battered is part of what's funny uh, about that um, background sequence. We might also see that the behaviour in comedy varies that's being endorsed is pro-merchant and indifferent to women. That's a start of how we might say that saying something is funny can't be the end of the discussion. What, why is this this way? Because it's funny. Because asking why something is funny uh, almost always has a social or cultural reason which might now be difficult to recover. If you read reviews of this play... Um, the current National Theatre production is well worth reading up about or seeing uh, if you can. It's on live at the Phoenix at the beginning of March. If you read reviews of the play, you can see some of the difficulties of translating the play's humour, but also on the ongoing significance, I think, of Bergsonian theories of the bodily and the mechanical. So, I've asked whether we should bother with comedy of errors. I've tried to suggest that we should, and that its pleasures and its sophistication are still underrated, and that's such a rarity in Shakespeare studies, where everything seems to be so well-trodden, uh, that that might in itself uh, be something attractive to you. I've tried to suggest ways that comic theories might be applied to the play to make its apparent deficiencies of character or emotional depth into its most deftly, deftly managed features, and then to cover some more general material on how we might understand comedy and its twin laughter. Next week, I'm lecturing on Richard III. Um, this is a slightly random collection of plays, I admit, uh, which is because I've now set myself the task of trying to do a lecture on pretty much every play, which was not the task I had set at the beginning. Had I set that at the beginning, I would have chosen the plays in a slightly different order. Um, but I hope this randomness will give you uh, something uh, kind of fruitful to think about. So I'm lecturing on Richard III, and the question I'm asking is, do we want Richmond to win? Do we want Richmond to win? Have a good week.